0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today I'm talking to Craig Mazin. He's the co-creator of The Last of Us. It's currently streaming on HBO. He also created Chernobyl, also on HBO Prior to that, some of you knew him as Ted Cruz's roommate at Princeton, who hated <laughs> Ted Cruz. Welcome, Craig.
2: <laughs> yeah, everyone hated Ted, but I was also his freshman year roommate who hated him.
1: So it became your fair. personality for a while. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it later. I, sure. I went looking for your, your tweets. I saw you protected them now, so maybe it's it's yes. not something you want to spend a ton of time on. But you made this awesome show. It's on HBO. I watched the first episode last night. Um, a lot of people have played and loved The Last of Us, the video games, 2013 video game. I think it's still exclusive to Sony PlayStation. It is. So they know what the show is. Um, But a lot of people haven't played that game. So tell us what the show is about. Sure. It
2: is ostensibly about a pandemic that pushes the world into an apocalypse, which sounds fairly familiar. And um, the pandemic has transformed uh, most of humanity into these monstrous creatures, which probably also sounds very familiar. But what the story is really about is a man who suffered a terrible loss, who is forced to uh, take this kid across this hostile country to try and uh, improve humanity, I guess would be the best way to say it. Save us all. Post
1: apocalypse zombie dystopia save the child story. And, And
2: that's, you know, I remember when I heard th- about the game; that was what people told me it was, and I was like, eh, pass," because <laughs> uh, you know I-, I don't care that much about zombies, and it seems somewhat familiar. But what was magical about The Last of Us as a game, and hopefully that's something we've recaptured as a show, is that it is that the beauty of it exists entirely within the relationships of people in the show, and the specific relationship and nature of Joel and Ellie, the the two lead characters. I never felt anything the way I felt uh, in a, playing a video game that, that I did when I played The Last of Us. And so we're talking about a game that people have tattooed on their bodies. I mean, they this is something they feel incredibly passionate about. And I'm, I'm one of those fans. So uh, getting a chance to bring this to life and hopefully Getting past a lot of the same like, yeah, eh, it's a zombie show. On the zombies, run. like, sure and kind zombies. of breaking through that and, and bringing people into the family of what makes this so special. That's that's it's an amazing opportunity, and I hope I hope we do it.
1: There are lots of zombie uh, post pandemic creations uh, in pop culture, going back many decades. Sometimes they're played a little bit for laughs, or or at least have some humor in it. And other times, like this time, it's it's deadly serious. It's very intense. Um, your PR people, the HBO PR people, were very uh, intent on me not letting, uh, not releasing a spoiler. Um, I'm gonna continue, even though the show's already aired. I'm not, I'm not gonna discuss the spoiler directly, but it is a major entertainment taboo that you guys broke uh, on screen there. So my main question here is: How much intensity did you think people were ready for when you're telling a? story that's directly referencing a pandemic that wipes out the world you knew this was going to come out 22 23 yeah. What, yeah. what were you thinking about sort of the audience receptivity to something that's pretty grim it's fun and intense and exciting but it's it's fundamentally dour in a lot of ways well I think we've gotten used to it you know yeah. I, I
2: think things that maybe uh, in the past were considered to be just too rough to experience on television we're, we're now a bit more grown up our our sophistication when it comes to television, I think is skyrocketed in almost hockey stick style fashion. But there is a temptation, I think for a lot of filmmakers and television producers to then push the envelope just to push it just to see like how dark and screwed up can we be? This is golden age of TV, right? Yeah. The the golden age and miserable age of TV. But for us, we just felt like, look, we want to show the things that we need to show. We back off in places, In some areas, we don't. I think that our feeling was, if we can be emotionally honest, we'll be fine. If we feel exploitative, if we feel like we're pushing it just to push it, then we won't be fine. I never want anyone to feel like we approached any of this cynically. Um, In the old days, maybe, you know, in the the good old 90s, you know, or even 2000s of HBO, it was sort of expected that there would be a lot of sex, a lot of nudity. And we don't really do that. and when it comes to violence, we're careful about it. There is violence, but the violence is meaningful. And we show the repercussions of violence. So if if our character punches someone in the face in episode three, we're probably going to see their bruised knuckles in episode four. We really try and, and continue to show that it's realistic and real. And, you know, honestly, after Chernobyl, I, I, look, I was terrified every night Chernobyl was on the air that people were finally going to go, oh, God, come on. Okay, they just killed dogs. I'm out. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and they didn't. They stayed because we weren't doing it to to be exploitative. We were doing it to be honest. And when it came to the pandemic, uh, you know, Neil and I just felt like, look, this isn't a show about the pandemic. We want to acknowledge in our little interesting prologue, we kind of acknowledge the existence of yep. pandemics and we acknowledge that people are smarter about these things than they used to be and
1: And then we move on to the show. I I read that you maybe just announced the deal for this show in the fall of 2020. And I do remember in the spring of 2020, there was this little trendlet of people watching movies like, um, what's the Steven Soderbergh uh, pandemic? Oh, yeah. Contagion. Contagion and a few others. And I was living in New York. I couldn't imagine watching any of this stuff. But obviously, there was some morbid curiosity or whatever about pandemic-y stuff when you sign a deal for a pandemic post-apocalyptic show in the fall of 2020 does that enter into your thinking like this thing could come out while we're still you know vaccineless and and, yeah, and still locked I, down I mean
2: we were not aware uh so when we said okay we're going to do this covid had yet to show its face to the rest of us um and uh then it did and for a moment there we were we felt <laughs> a little strange um and then we got over it um, because, I don't know, in the end, um, it just seemed like, like I said, we weren't really making a show about the pandemic. The show mm-hmm. in, had a pandemic in it, but the way I like to put it is, for instance, Contagion is about humanity trying to counteract a viral pandemic. In our show, no one's counteracting the the fungal pandemic because it's happened. It's over. It's been 20 yep. years. There is no more pandemic. They won. We lose. <laughs> and so then the question is, now what do we do? So in that regard, it really, the, the pandemic aspect of our show lasts about 25 minutes and then that's it.
1: Uh it is based on a video game. You said when you first heard about it, you're like, I don't know. Was that was that because you were playing? Had someone brought you the game to play, or had someone brought you the project that was a game? that they oh. wanted you to be a, a turn this into a movie? or TV Yeah, show? no, it was definitely the the former. Um, I'm
2: I'm a big gamer. I play yeah. most everything. At the time, I whenever there was a game where like uh, it's exclusive to PlayStation. I think I hadn't, uh, I hadn't played PlayStation games in a while. I was kind of I was firmly into Xbox at the time. I think it was like deep into Halo and such. And a friend of mine, Chris Morgan, who makes the Fast and Furious movies, was like, dude, dude, you got to play this game. And I'm like, ah, zombies. And he's like, you got to. And I remember looking at the cover and going, well, this is interesting. There's this kid, a 14-year-old girl on the cover featured more prominently than the guy. Well, that's yeah. just something you would never see back then that was it was almost like considered marketing suicide and happily um you know everyone found out quite the opposite was true but that was intriguing to me so um i yeah i i bought it i actually bought a ps3 specifically to play the last of us and
1: uh i was i was just so taken so Explain explain what was what was thrilling about the game to you and to lots of other people, because most I think some people will have a vague idea what the game is, but most will just put it in generic video game worlds. They won't understand what's going on there.
2: Well, the game begins in a way I've never experienced in any game prior. I think games since have drawn from it. But normally when you start a video game, you are immediately thrust into some action. And the point of the action is to teach you what the square X circle and triangle button do and L1 and L2 and so forth. But the idea is that you're, you're into the mechanics of the game and the world of the game. And you're often playing a faceless person, but you're certainly playing the person that you're going to be playing for the entire game. And then here comes this game that does none of that. It begins with a long discussion between a father and a daughter sitting on a couch. And, and the next thing you know, Uh, It's the middle of the night, you're the daughter. You're playing the daughter and dad's not there and the world begins to fall apart and you remain playing her until there's a perspective switch and uh, this unspeakable tragedy occurs and you, the player who have been playing this, I think she used 12 year old girl in the game, you die. And you witness this, this absolutely brutal and tragic Death and the scene was as good, as meaningful, and as moving as anything I've ever seen
1: in a film or in a TV show. And that's that- the kind of that 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 way of talking about video games being as powerful as entertain as as movies and television show has been an idea circling around games for twenty years. And it's yep. why people who are really into games say this is just as important as TV or movies, then you'll have folks like Steven Spielberg saying, I've never been moved to tears by a video game. And, and there's this sort of middle ground now where there's stories in video games that told through cutscenes, And Mm -hmm. as the tech gets better, those scenes come closer and closer to what you'd see in a movie or TV show, but they're still different or they're still like, they're generally, I think, you know, B versions of stuff you've seen on television and movies or what in are in, in video games. And we can talk about avatar if you want to, but, um, so I'm curious when, 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 when you encountered that, were you saying, Oh, this is really intense for a video game or are you saying, no, this is just genuinely moving art period. The latter. Um, and I recognize and,
2: and acknowledge the, the, I would call it the general critique of video games a lot of video games over the years have been derivative themselves of movies, so it's not surprising to hear Spielberg say something like that. I mean, he makes Indiana Jones, and then eventually Tomb Raider comes out mm-hmm. as if it's not, you know,
1: yeah, it's like I made that
2: already. Yeah, it's it's pretty derivative, and and and, and it's a great game, but many games, even even Uncharted, which is the other you know big franchise that Naughty Dog, the company, made, The Last of Us has, is so uh, clearly it was a great debt to. Indiana Jones Um, and so a lot of times when you play video games even the big ones you think oh this is a really good version of that movie I love I mean when the first time I played Halo I'm like oh my god I'm playing aliens this is great Mm -hmm. but The Last of Us was absolutely different The Last of Us was an experience unto itself what Neil Druckmann and Naughty Dog did with that game was to make a story that was worthy of itself and as good as better in fact, way better than most things that I would see on television or in movies. It deserved to be, you know, the most awarded game of all time. And I think it wasn't until The Last of Us 2 came on.
1: Neil Druckmann, like you said, uh, made the game. He's making the show with you as you're adapting a video game for a TV show. And again, there's lots of ways to do this. Sometimes you can just say, oh, we're just going to call this movie. The name of the game and sure. it'll have a couple references to it in this case you're taking the whole plot i'm assuming that and i haven't played the game but i'm assuming you're taking actual scenes and actually trying to recreate them the way they appeared on my tv if i was playing on a playstation am i right in that guess sometimes we do
2: uh, it's, it's an it's a mix i would say as the season goes on i think people who are fans of the game will recognize scenes from the game mm-hmm. They There will some that will be exact, some will be inspired by, then there will be entire episodes where it's new.
1: And when you're, when you're recreating a scene, do you want to actually recreate the lighting and the perspective and everything? Or do you say, well, this is what they were doing at the time. We can actually block this a better way. We can make this a more interesting way to present this. Or do you say we should, they did it right the first time. Let's just replicate it. I think
2: in certain cases you feel like, Hey, you know what? They did it right the first time. There's It's not like, so when Neil um, was making that game, I think there was a sense of not wanting the camera to do things that cameras can't do, even though you can move a camera anywhere in a video game. Mm -hmm. So because the style was so grounded anyway, a lot of times as we went to go shoot it, maybe I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to do it exactly the same way. But you end up roughly in the same kind of positions because they're where the camera ought to be. Sometimes, you know, there are certain circumstances where you can't be quite like that. It was never... We never really went for like perfect fidelity as much as feeling fidelity Mm -hmm. so when it came to lighting and things like that it was really just like how do we give the audience the same feeling and emotional impact that people experience when they play the game
1: beyond plot and characters and names and dialogue are there ways of shooting a television show that's based on a game where you want to make it seem game-like in some way or a nod to that? Or is that just natural now that the, the blurring of TV and video games is you don't have to actually do it explicitly.
2: Yeah. I, we actually didn't want to ever introduce gameness per se. Um, in fact, gameplay is that's, that's where the adaptation becomes interesting. You take story character relationships tone, I think is a really important thing. The general feeling of the world now, what do you do about the fact that so much of the experience of the game is gameplay, which is something that we really shouldn't be doing when we're creating a passive experience like television watching? And then we ask ourselves all sorts of philosophical questions. Well, how did I feel when I was playing through this? Is this part Was this part mostly there because it was fun to play, but doesn't necessarily enhance the story? All those questions, these are the things that Neil and I asked a thousand times. And what was great about him, and, and I think he's Honestly, unique among source material authors who are having their work adapted, is that he was so flexible and smart about the fact that we needed to adapt, and he would let me go and play, and I would come back to him and show him a script and say, "Okay, there's a lot of stuff in here that you <laughs> is new and different, but let's see what you think." And he was always—I mean—he's just really smart and and generous
1: were there elements of the game where you're like this is great I love this I'd love to figure out some way to get this in and then you just couldn't because it didn't make sense as a story and it no. worked it was fun to play but not fun to watch No
2: no if I, if I wanted to get it in we got it in You know but but part of I think this job part of of adapting material from one medium to another is understanding what you want to be in it because I think instinctively If something feels like it's not going to translate, you don't want to translate it. Mm -hmm. The worst thing is to feel like, oh, well, you know, we have to do this bit. Well, we don't have to do anything. We choose what to do.
1: And when I'm watching it and their characters are escaping and they're in a truck and it it strikes me as like, oh, this looks like a game I've played. Is that just because that's what happens when, I mean, there's only so many ways to shoot someone running away from something in a truck and whether you do it in a video game or a movie, it kind of looks the same or or is there something intentional there? I think it's a little mix of both, right? Uh Like, so part of it is when
2: Neil is making a game, he is drawing from the cinematic language of movies and, and, and television shows that he loves and that we've all grown up in. And then when I'm adapting it, I'm thinking about... Both. I'm thinking about like, look, this is a great way of doing it. But then also there was a a certain feeling I had with the claustrophobic nature of these three people in a car that I loved when I, so really it, it just comes down to picking and choosing and following your instincts about what you think will translate best. It's never about let's get as much game in there as possible. It's really what will make the best
1: episode of TV. We'll be right back with Craig Maison, but first a word from a sponsor.
0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I've seen a couple times, once on my own, once when the kids watched 1917, the World War I, um, which is... One take, and it's generally from the perspective of the main character. And about midway through, I'm like, oh, this is a first person shooter. And then there's a part where it's explicit, <laughs> like, there's very much a first person shooter scene. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. For my kids, this will just seem like just st- entertainment. It all looks similar. Do you think that those lines are going to blur more and more? Or do you think most people are going to understand what you understand, which is a game is an interactive experience? It's lean forward. You present it in a different certain way. And and, you know, TV is passive and you lean back and, and and there there are clear lines about the difference in the in the media. It's a good question. I can only tell you what I hope. What I
2: hope is that people don't try and blur the lines because I think the lines are there for a reason. I mean, you're very smartly pointing out that there's just a different method of engagement, just as there is with a book. I mean, we don't just roll text on a screen, you know, for for minutes at a time. The, there is a reason we change things as we adapt them. And understanding what the soul and the tone and the beauty of something is and how to put it from a painting into a sculpture, that's what we're supposed to do. I hope, because let's face it, video game adaptations haven't always been great. <laughs> there have mm-hmm. been a lot of disappointments along the way.
1: It's all very often a sign to stay away from this product if you're a person, if you're a consumer.
2: It struggles, right? Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a general... Pipeline, it struggles. I'm hoping that our show is maybe a good blueprint for other people who are coming now, who because there's a lot of them in development. And I hope that our show is maybe a, a good way of thinking about it, because we really applied as much story science and game fan and writing fan science as we could to the
1: adaptation. You're saying story science? Story science. Oh yeah, I, I don't know that I've heard that term before. So I feel like uh-huh. it must be a term you use all the time, and it just shows you that you're a professional scriptwriter. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that says it. <laughs> what What does story science mean to you? Well, there is, and sometimes I'll say emotional math. Um, there's art, and there's craft, and one of the, the craft is is uh, underrated and and underutilized. I think there are just certain kind of technical ways of portraying and relaying narrative that you master over time or hopefully you get better at. And these are the decisions that we would bring to bear all the time. Um, Okay, well, if we do this here, is it undercutting this? If we do this, don't we really need to set it up way, way earlier so it has some sort of resonance? There are thematic questions. How do you create, I think of every episode as its own little circle where the ending reflects the beginning. Well, this is something that's very different. You know, I say to Neil, like, as a player, I decide when I'm going to stop playing tonight. I decide
1: when the story ends tonight. Mm-hmm. But watching television,
2: we're deciding for everybody where
1: it ends tonight. Dan Harmon has famously sort of a, a, a schematic that he yeah, has I've seen when he it talks it's about so TV shows <laughs> and and, and, I, and so you you I've interviewed John August before. I guess you have worked with him in the past, doing sort of screenwriting tips. We we have a blog, a, a podcast rather. Yeah. It. How did you? How did you? learn the mechanics of this? Was it something you always knew you were going to do? No, no. I
2: mean, I fell into writing. I wanted to do something in the entertainment business. Um, and it turned out that writing was something that people at least told me was the thing they wanted me to keep doing. Um, that's, I guess, how you start to learn what you're good at. Other people tell Do you.
1: Do you parachute into L.A. or did you have someone who sort of oh, walked you through it? Parachutes, a parachute is too generous, uh, too kind to describe. I think I fell
2: out of a plane into L.A. I mean, I, when I graduated college, I just, you know, I packed up my stuff into my Corolla and started driving. I didn't know anyone in the movie business or the television business. I, I had 1,400 bucks get me through gas money, food and first and last month of rent and basically I needed to find a job within a couple of weeks or I was doomed. And so I went to, I went to temp agencies. That's how I started I, mean, I didn't know anybody and I wasn't I was from New York. I had grown up in New York and New Jersey I didn't the whole thing was was new to me. but in time, that's what I found out was that writing was something that I could do. I have been learning the whole time. I've been writing professionally for over 25 years. So there was something at least in the beginning that I had, I guess, that was instinctive that worked, but that's not enough. You want to get better at things. And so I've been working and working really hard to try and get better over time.
1: What project broke you through? What project got you into the world of working screenwriter? Uh, So uh,
2: this is like 1994. Uh, I had a writing partner at the time and we were, we were just writing, you know, spec scripts and comedies and trying to break in. And we went to go see um, Apollo 13. And we loved it. But both of us, this is like, you know, in the thick of the Jim Carrey era, we were Mm -hmm. like, this would be so much funnier if Tom Hanks was just an idiot instead of Tom Hanks. (laughs) This would be. He He made his butt talk. Basically. Yeah. And so we pitched this story called Space Cadet to Disney and they bought it and it eventually became a movie called Rocket Man with Harlan Williams. Not Rocketeer, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a much better loved film. (laughs) But that said, I will say now what happens, I meet uh, people who are like in their late 20s or early 30s and all they want to do is talk about Rocketman because that's the movie they saw when they were eight on, you know, on DVD or whatever.
1: And so you do that, you end up making like Hangover 2, Hangover 3, scripts for that. And so you're in that very rarefied world of person who gets paid to write scripts some of which get made, a lot mm-hmm. of which I assume don't, or you're, you're, you're work doing script doctoring for other people, and it can yeah. be very lucrative, but you're not the guy who made Chernobyl. How did you become the guy who made Chernobyl, which is so radically different in tone than all yeah. the other work you seem to have been doing?
2: Well, I always was the guy that made Chernobyl. I just hadn't made Chernobyl yet. I mean, it was still me, you know, but I think you, you sort of put your finger on it. Um, I was getting paid. And, you know, when you're a, my parents were public school teachers, very middle class. And the point is you, you, get a career, you work your career, people are paying you, you do the work I, had a, I was starting a family and things were going well, but I needed to get to a place where I felt secure enough that I could say, Hey, what if I just blew this whole thing up? Because my feeling was if I drift off into drama and all the rest of it and it's, and it doesn't work, that's, that's it, you know? Cause you're getting
1: I, paid to do comedy. You're good at it. You're known oh, yeah. quantity. They pay you. You give them results. Bingo.
2: And I did a lot of work on a lot of movies that I'm not credited on where, you know, you would come in and try and make things better in the last minute or for reshoots and all this was going great, but it wasn't necessarily, I I just got to a place where I thought, I think I'm a better writer than the stuff that they're paying me to write. That doesn't, and I'm not saying anything bad about any of the movies I wrote on because I love those movies, but just a lot of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I, I took a chance here and, and, and then HBO took a chance on me because, you know, I hire the hangover guy to write a movie about, or a show about Chernobyl uh, was certainly a risk. But I, you know, I found myself, I think in a couple of different ways, both in drama. I I love writing drama. Television and long form television allows me to tell stories the way I think I naturally wanted to. And maybe most importantly, I'm in charge. That means I interpret my work. I interpret the script and I finish it. I cast it. I edit it. I complete it. And that I think has, as it turns out, that was kind of the secret sauce that I've been missing all along. And I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging, like I should have been in charge all along. It's just, I think I write in a specific way that can either fly or crash depending on fairly subtle moves by the people in charge. So if I'm in charge of it, probably a better chance that it'll fly.
1: So now you're the guy who made Chernobyl and the last of us. And I assume the last of us is going to do well. So that's all great. And at the same time, the entire TV industry, which had been booming and they were just mm-hmm. shoveling cash and, and signing up everyone to make everything, yeah. all the blinking lights have gone now. and, mm-hmm. and, no one's going from $17 billion to zero, but they're, they're pulling back a lot. And a lot of projects yeah. that were going to get made aren't going to get made. Yep. If by all counts it's harder to sell stuff. How do you fit into that landscape? Do you think?
2: Well, I think my timing has been pretty good and that's luck. Certainly didn't count on it. You know, when I, when I did Chernobyl, the feature business was collapsing under my feet, whether I realized it or not. Um, the amount of movies that were getting made were reducing quickly. And the amount of television that was being made was being expanded dramatically. You're absolutely right to say that there is a a contraction and a course correction going on, which also, thank God, I mean, there's just too much. It's just too Mm -hmm. much. But I feel like, you know, look, for me personally, it seems like Happily, The Last of Us has been received pretty well so far, certainly by the critics. And, you know, we had our, our premiere last night and the audience seems to be really happy. Um, so I feel pretty good about continuing on to do it. I keep my eye on the business in general, but mostly I concentrate on the work that's in front of me. I've always been that guy. I just kind of ignore trends,
1: keep my head down and work. I had BJ Novak on the show last year. I guess it was last year he had a movie out and he was just talking about streaming and generally saying, you know, he was he was ranting about comedies and, you know, a lot of these comedies aren't funny. But also there's a structural problem, which is we can't make the office anymore, at least under the current conditions, because everyone who wrote and acted in in the office would have their own show. Yeah. And so that, that talent would be disaggregated and, and then that makes it harder to make good stuff. Do you imagine a world where, because there's less opportunity that you have, you're able to sort of put together better teams of, of people working on these projects? Am I, am I working too hard to find a, a silver lining in that cloud?
2: Well, if you are making, if you're making a show that requires a large and very consistent ensemble, That can be challenging. Although I would say to BJ, who's one of the smartest guys I know, that part of the solution is farm teams of new talent. There are, I mean, the office was a farm team for so long. I mean, there were just these wonderful actors that were coming out of it that people hadn't really heard of before, obviously with Steve Carell kind of leading the way. And look what all of them have done, which is, and so you can do that again.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that as you said it. I mean, one of the, one of the things you heard the last few years up until last fall was, you know, one thing that the the boom is doing is letting a lot of people who weren't traditionally allowed to make shows or star in shows or run a writer's room. Yes. Um, cause they didn't go, they didn't come, have a Harvard lampoon background now have that access. And so, you know, you want to make sure that you're not shutting the door on them as, as things contract as well.
2: Yeah. And that, that is particularly relevant for writers of color and for women, uh, disabled writers. There's just this, I mean, let's just, there's in the entire world of, People that aren't straight, white, you know, non-trans, cis, het, white guy. Cis, mm-hmm. het, white guy. Forever, that was kind of what we had here in Hollywood. And to the extent that I was a beneficiary of that system, I'm very aware of it.
1: Speaking of which, The Last of Us 2, had, which is the video game sequel that came out a couple of years ago, yes. got, I guess, now predictable blowback online because yeah. there's a, a sexuality <laughs> component with one of the characters. Does that hang at all over you as you're producing this, knowing that there's a part probably very small, but also very vocal game fans who are going to be upset with you if you do something they think is too woke or whatever the term is? Nothing you can do about it. Well, there is one thing you can do about it. And that is to not
2: calculate your way to anything, but to write as honestly as you can from your heart. So I don't, it may be that some people will eventually accuse me of pandering or being woke or any of that stuff, but I'm actually, I don't pander and I'm not woke. Uh, I don't know what the fuck that even means anymore. <laughs> I just know that I try and be a decent person. And as I get older, I listen to my kids and I have, and I have family members who are transgender and family members who are LGBTQ and, and I have family members who are disabled. So you you, know, you want to listen to people and, and just be kind. That's really all I care about, but then write the best show I can uh, as honestly as I can. And then, you know, if people think it's cynical or grouse or whatever. I, Turns out there's fewer of them than they say because <laughs> oh man, The Last of Us Two got so much blowback and then sold a whole lot of copies and won every award possible and and that game is beloved by so many people and I think it's
1: wonderful. It's like a hard right and ask you about Ted Cruz. Yeah, um, sure. You could.
2: Talking about hard right.
1: Yeah, exactly. So so I this one it's the reason I knew your name prior prior yeah. to to Chernobyl <laughs> was. The guy who went to college with Ted Cruz and would tweet angrily about him. So I went to go pull up your tweets, your choice tweets. They're all gone. You've locked your your Twitter down. So first of all, just walk us through. Uh, Do you get to, I'm assuming you don't pick Ted Cruz as a roommate. He's a son. Oh God, no,
2: no, no, no. And and just to be clear that my Twitter is all locked down mostly because I just got like uh, tired of Elon Musk's shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just didn't feel like doing it. so.
1: That's that's like in the last couple of months. That's yeah, not, yeah. That
2: okay. was that was really the reason I was just like enough already. I didn't feel like contributing to his uh, nonsense. Sorry, Elon. Uh, <laughs> but as far as Ted goes, I certainly did not choose him as a roommate. I received in 1988. I received a, a letter in the mail saying, "Okay, here's your roommate, uh, Raphael Edward Cruz from Houston, Texas," and I was like. Great. I was so excited. I'm having a roommate. This is great. So I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back and told me his he went by the name Ted. I was like, okay. And then he actually, uh, because we lived in New Jersey, Ted and his mom and his dad came over to our house to have dinner like a few days before we all, you know, matriculated for freshman week. And I don't know, it took me about 10 seconds. <laughs> 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 to just go oh no i'm in so much trouble this guy's terrible and uh let's just put it this way sometimes you meet somebody and you think they're terrible and you're like i don't know maybe it's just me
1: could you project out to 2016 with him running for president and donald trump insulting his wife and him agreeing to eventually uh, no, support I, donald uh, trump i i would have
2: needed heavy doses of Thorazine, if I had been predicting that back in 1988. But I would say that he wanted to be class president. Uh, He ran for class president, I think, three times and and got his ass kicked three times. I don't know. He just uh, he never stopped trying. It always seemed to me that all Ted really wanted to be was president. I don't even think he knows why.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, your, your tweets are gone, but you can still find. Uh, oh, yeah, they're clips out there. Of them. Yeah, My Google freshman it. year college roommate Ted Cruz is going to be elected senator. In case I hadn't made it clear, he's also a huge asshole. That's you. And that was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, then, yeah, then yeah, you just yeah, you yeah. just spent a bunch of time running him down. Um, did anyone ever pull you aside and go, look, I know it's kind of fun to dunk on this guy, but you do have a career as a public person. And this yeah. isn't even though it's Hollywood, there's not a lot of uh, uh, endemic. Ted Cruz's sympathy here—it's still not a good look. Did anyone ever, ever suggest that maybe you stop that?
2: No, <laughs> and that is how how unambiguous everyone's hatred for Ted is, including members of his own party. That's the thing. Yeah. You've got Lindsey Graham saying, you know, if they killed uh, someone, killed Ted on the Senate floor, and they had a vote, nobody nobody would vote to to convict you. I mean, he he is just loathed by everyone. Is so there a that Ted Cruz character in any of your work that I can spot? Oh no, I, I couldn't. I I just couldn't. I would feel so gross even trying to to write it. It listen, I joke about it all the time, but I got to tell you. So our room was like I measured it. I believe it was like twelve feet by nine feet. It was it was this like prison cell with bunk beds and everything. And I was stuck in there for ten months with that guy. And I tried to get out. They they were like, no, we're not moving you. Uh, we don't have any other rooms and uh, it was, it was awful. Um, I, I, he was awful then. Uh, he remains awful now. And all I can hope is that people, I mean, look, the voters in Texas, I guess they're going to do whatever they're going to do, but America for the love of God, please. No. no, I think,
1: I think America has voted repeatedly on Ted Cruz and it's team thumbs like. down. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, let's go back to, to your work. Sure. Uh, Last of Us will run for another eight episodes. Are you working on your next thing or, or are you trying to figure out what that is? Well,
2: I mean, our great hope is the next thing is more The Last of Us. We've yeah. got, you know, some more work to do there. Neil and I do not envision a kind of ongoing, endless The Last of Us series. It's it has a built in ending. But to get to that ending will take a little bit of time. the The remaining story Think will require more than a season to tell because it's, it's it's quite bigger and it's more complicated and intertwined. So you know, assuming that uh, you know people watch and you know we're we're seeing some good signs so far uh, from last night. And I you know take a week or two for them to compile the data, but um, assuming that people enough people watch, then we'll be back. And that's what I'm going to be doing full time: more of the Last of Us. And honestly, that's all I want to do. So that's great. <laughs>
1: One of the great things with this job is I get to talk to people who have cool jobs, who like their cool jobs, who are appreciative of it. Um, always nice to hear. Craig Mason, thanks for coming by. Thank you, sir. Thanks again to Craig Mason. If you couldn't tell, that was a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. I enjoy really just about all these conversations. So thanks again to Craig for joining us. Thanks to Travis and Jelani for producing and editing the show. Our advertisers who bring it to you free thanks to you guys for listening this is recode media we'll see you next week
0: more to do's less time and an infinite number of tools to keep track of sometimes doing business has never felt harder but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals you can just use hubspot because their all all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier imagine this high quality leads fast closing deals